Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Bonnie McFarlane is a comedian writer who grew up on a farm in northern Canada. She's appeared on two seasons of Last Comic Standing, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Late Show with David Letterman, and has an HBO comedy special to her credit. She wrote and directed the film Women Aren't Funny and co-hosts the podcast My Wife Hates Me with her husband, comedian Rich Voss. She has a new memoir out called You're Better Than Me, and she tells me all about it. So let's get to it! So, Bonnie McFarlane, yes. your new memoir is called You're Better Than Me. Yes. But so, last things first, when's the last time you felt better than someone? Um, well, I live with Rich Voss, so, <laughs> I mean, goes without saying. But he's not here. He's not here. He's... We're here to talk about you. Um, well, I, I actually, uh, I'm so sick of talking about the book because uh, I've never had to talk about anything before. I've always just got on stuff without any agenda. Now it's always like, you wrote a book. Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, Your daughter is eight? I believe so. (laughs) I think think you're right. I I mean, I do remember watching your, you tape your Comedy Central presents and Rich had the baby in. She was three weeks old. Yeah. Three weeks old. What were we thinking? Taking a three week old out. But I had to have the baby like, so. They asked me when, when I, I think it was like four or five months pregnant. They were like, Hey, you know, do you want to do a, a special? And I was like, well, I'm pregnant. And they were like, well, we tape this day. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'll have had the baby by then. <laughs> I don't know why I was like, so yeah, yeah. And then, uh, it got closer and closer to tape day and I needed to tape the special in order to get my health insurance and. <laughs> So I had to have the baby. Mm-hmm. It was like, imp- so then I had to get um, induced. So it was a professional decision to have the baby. Well, I mean, <laughs> yes, we thought about it beforehand. No, I mean, I had to like have the baby before the special mm-hmm. so that I could shoot the special so that I could get the health insurance right. to take care of my baby. So so it was like this, it was like getting closer and closer. I was late. So then they finally were like, I was like, get it out of me. Did you have to induce it? C-section? They, or? Yeah, they induced. And then that was like a little bit of a problem. Then I ended up having mm. a C-section. So yeah. when you were eight. Yes. You were living on a farm. Yes. Somewhere between Alberta and Saskatchewan. I can't believe no one's ever. I've never thought of this before about my daughter being eight. What I was like when I was yeah. eight. So when you like were I was eight. doing so much work all the time, and my daughter does nothing. <laughs> <laughs> she literally is like... Yeah, I, so what was your day like? You didn't have a TV yet. No. You didn't even have the cows yet. Well, we had a lot of cows. But you but we, did not I have your own I didn't personal personally have my own cow, cow. yet. No. But so, we'd all learned to, to milk cows. It really hurts your hand. That's, it's like, It's like, do this hard. Right. For like 45 the minutes. The act of milking a cow 
with your hands. We'd get cramps in our hands. Manual labor. It's goddamn manual labor. So what did you imagine your li- your adult life would be like when you were eight years old working? I imagined, like, you know, I was going to be rich and live in a big house and have a pool and live in a city. And uh, I read but- a lot about New York. And uh, I remember asking my mom when I was about eight, I mm-hmm. said, what's a Jew? Because I'd been reading all these books. Like Diary of Anne Frank? Or no, what were like, you reading? Like just, what were you reading? No, but my mom had, my mom loved um, popular books. Mm-hmm. You know, like so Stephen okay. King and, you know, anything that was like Daniel Steele, you know. And would she go to the, the, so the bookstore in the city and just get the bestsellers? Load up. I think she did those things where you, you know, spent a penny and you got like 800 oh. books. Like the old record club. Yes. We were always getting boxes But there was books. a book club. We had there a was, lot probably, of books. There was a book equivalent for that, yeah. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of books. And um, my mom was a teacher, too. So, um, But we just read her books. Okay. Did you have a favorite book? Um, As a kid. Pre-TV. Oh, I... I uh, um, what was it called? Uh, um God, it was so creepy and weird. Um, <laughs> the Diary of Anne Frank. The Diary. What the comedy? That seems like it might be a favorite book of yours. It was based hilarious. on your comedy. Yes. No. Um. Um. Stepford Wives. Okay. I don't know why. Because I. Is that I why? Have read is that, that why you imagined your future? You would be rich with a pool. You would yes. be a Stepford wife. Yes. It sounds. I still think that sounds nice mm-hmm. to have someone tell you what to do, <laughs> so you don't have to like make decisions. You almost have that. I know. It's very close. It is irritating when it's really happening. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds good in theory. (laughs) You're like, the book is better. (laughs) The book is better. better. (laughs) So which came first, the cow or the TV? Oh, that's a good question. Um, The TV actually came first, but we didn't get any channels. So sometimes you could get morning cartoons, but Mm -hmm. it it was never... Great, but the French Channel, for whatever reason, came in perfectly. It's probably a governmental. I know, even though you're on the opposite side of Canada from the French. Yeah, it's it's like how Mexican radio comes in really good here (laughs) for some reason. Why we don't know? Yeah, I remember I I flew to Edmonton a few years ago to check out their comedy. They invited me to the comedy festival, and I was surprised that even in Edmonton they were doing both. French and English announcements. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what you have to sit uh, when you're on a plane. You have to sit on the runway an extra half hour <laughs> to get on. Just to hear everything twice. So, so they can finish out. So when you're 10 and you get you get your own cow mm-hmm. and you chose wisely, you picked a cow that was pregnant so you could have two cows. Yes. And then you get a TV. How did you still... The TV really never happened until I started babysitting. And okay. then I would go into town... Because other people's TVs had yes, they had, well, because they were lived in town. I still was living in the rural, so then I would watch TV. I remember watching the worst movies, but just they were so clear and crisp and wonderful. Did that change your <laughs> your vision of what adult Bonnie would be? Um, you know, I guess I always sort of thought I was going to be a writer. That was sort of always my goal, and then to uh, write the same kind of books that your mom. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, there's different kind of writing, so. I did. I started when I was pretty young. I started writing a book that was about um, uh, a woman who was in a coma, but she could hear 
everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. I was young too, but it was like, you know, very soapy. Like her husband was having an affair. Like she could hear it all that she was <laughs> out. I guess there's like an actual thing it's called locked in disease or something. Oh, like Stockholm syndrome? No, it's where you can't move, but you can, you're conscious. Oh. But no one knows if you're conscious or not. Oh, because you can't speak. You, you can't, can't tell like, anybody. You, yeah, you're locked in. Oh. So that was that was gonna be my. You could still pitch that somewhere. <laughs> I know it's up. just just black. It's like a radio play. <laughs> it's just from her point of view. Yeah, but on a radio play, you can't hear her. What? <laughs> You'd only oh, you can't hear her. All right. right. So you, it would need to be a movie. Right. Hmm. But then how would you like you you you're either yeah you can't. How would you do her inner thoughts? Just a voiceover? I was locked in. (laughs) So I guess this is basic psychotherapy, but did you yourself feel locked in? Oh, my God. You're, like, making so many connections. (laughs) Did you feel like, oh, my God, I'm trapped? I did sort of feel trapped. In the northern plains of Canada. Yes. I'm not even near Edmonton or Calgary. No, it was far. Yes. Uh I did and I didn't. I mean, I guess for a, a lot, a large part of my childhood, I didn't know. I mean, I guess I knew because I read a lot, but I wasn't like being bombarded with images mm-hmm. all the time because we didn't have TV. But um, uh, like I really didn't know. I just always thought there was something. Else. I had a FOMA really early on okay. in my life. And- Is that FOMO? Fear of missing out. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, like, what's FOMA? FOMA? I was like, what's the A for? Fear of missing. Ass? <laughs> fear, I had fear of missing America. <laughs> oh. Well, your your first... How old were you the first time you went to America? Came to America? Um, 21. Um, I came actually with my, my mom and my sisters. We all went to Disneyland. Well, that's not entirely true. What? Is it spoiler alert? What? When you were 17. Oh, oh, I blocked that out. Oh, my God. I totally don't even ever think of that as a thing. I mean, (laughs) we're not here to talk about the book, per se. You know what? I didn't. The book is about your life. Yes. So there was some, some, you know, sad things that happened uh, when I was young. Um, So, yeah, I got pregnant and had to go have an abortion in America. But, you know, it's weird. I never thought about that story Rarely, you know, when I was drunk, sometimes right. or like with girlfriends at a sleepover, you'd be like, "Guess what happened to me?" Um, but uh, it didn't. It doesn't. It wasn't like informing my life that much until I, then. I wrote the book and then I put it in there, right? Because now you're thinking about like things that happened in my life, right? Because like, the memoir is everything that happens leading up to meeting Rich. Meeting Rich. It's was. everything pre. Right. Rich. If you think this book is sad, <laughs> wait, for the, wait sequel. Till the next one. <laughs> um, but was that also like a fear of being locked into this life that you didn't ask for? Oh, that was definitely like, I thought I was going to be, you know, it was really, we were really poor, uh, like really poor, like as poor as people, you, you know, in America are mm-hmm. really. Um, we did have land and we did have food, you know, so we weren't like going You're, hungry. You were self-sustaining. We were self-sustaining. Poor. Self-sustaining poor. Yeah. But we didn't have anything much beyond that. We lived off the land and, uh, you know, luckily my parents are, you know, they're both super hardworking, you know, responsible mm-hmm. people. Uh, so, you know. When's the last time you went back there? I go back twice a year. Okay. I go back at Christmas and I go back once in the summer. 
That is far. That's, That's far. how I am with my parents. But they're, in, they're semi-retired in Florida. Oh. So, so it's far, far enough away. But yeah. it's far enough away that it's, yeah, twice a year, once at Christmas and once... In the summer. In the summer. Going to Florida in the summer. What a treat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like going to cold, like, Alberta in the winter. <laughs> I know. It's brutal. I can only do it if I fly first class. Mm-hmm. And I don't tell, of course, them that I'm like... Right. They're always like, oh, it costs you so much money to come. It's like, yeah, you don't know the half of it. Because I can't get on. It's so far to go there. And it's so cold once you get there. It's like there's no fun. Mm-hmm. You have to fly first class. It's the only way you'll get there. It's the only way you can handle it. No. I've been through so much like hardship in my life, but now I've acclimated so quickly. So, you know, after you had the abortion and... You're graduating from high school. Mm-hmm. What was your escape plan? So then, you were still thinking you were going to be a writer. Yes. Okay. Still so. thinking I was going to be a writer. <clears throat> um, my mom really tried to get me to go to college. I didn't want to go, but she wanted. You know, she was sort of looking for me to um, do. You know, go to college in Edmonton or or um, you know follow like a normal career path. You know, and uh, I didn't want to, and I was like, "I've got, I gotta go s- somewhere." So I went to Victoria first, okay, on Vancouver Island. Then I, uh, then I was in Vancouver. Uh, uh, actually, then I went back to Edmonton, and I did go to school uh, for about a year and a half. I went to radio and television arts, okay. But um, yeah, it was enough that I went like when I went to Vancouver, I um, I interned as a uh, copywriter at this advertising agency and then I worked for them and then they um you know helped me get started in freelance writing and sort of that's then that that's when I started um, working at the comedy club well was the advertising your first exposure to comedy yeah I mean because copywriting is right times it actually really did help in terms of like you know those guys were really great at that that place. I mean, I was still waitressing, and um, I wasn't making any money anywhere, but um, I loved that job. I loved going there every day, and they would, you know, it was all about, um, you know, economy of words and mm-hmm. trying to get your point across in as few words as possible. The only thing that was di- really different about advertising and writing stand-up is that they it's totally fine to be influenced in advertising. They don't, that's not a thing that anybody put the brakes on <laughs> with. It was like, I saw this ad about, it's like, yeah, yeah, that'll work. Do it. Put it down. <laughs> okay. Parallel thought. Not that these guys weren't creative people, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Like right. then when you get into comedy, it's like, it's, it's very serious. Right. I mean, you can't use the same catchphrase. I know. Well, even, you know, some people get mad about the like same I, word. Right. Like I heard, oh, what a feeling Toyota. That's good. How about, oh, what a feeling Chevy. Yes. Yeah, so they would be like, that, yeah, that's great. That seems fine. <laughs> That seems totally fine. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and we're not doing the same ad. No. Or like the, the Oscar Mayer, my baloney has a first name, and then translate that to Hebrew national. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's, oh, sure. It's kosher. Um, so but you see, you will see, you see it in ads mm-hmm. all the time. They're almost like. Carbon copies right. of each other sometimes. Once well, that's they, that's they a certain thing that works. Well, I mean, that's been an age-old uh, frustration with Hollywood that there's 
Right. No new ideas. Like they'll just remake something. They don't right. care. But I don't understand why they don't just remake all kids' movies. They don't need to be making new kids' movies. The kids don't know. Right. They haven't seen those. <laughs> just keep remaking the good old, hey, Hollywood, I got a tip for you. <laughs> keep remaking those kids' movies. Well, they do it with Annie every Right. So I think they're right to do it. I think Shrek. Make a new Shrek. Make <laughs> a new Shrek. <laughs> in a few years. <laughs> Uh, are you looking for the Cameron Diaz role in in the new Shrek? Yes. <laughs> Did you get the... that? Would be the best job, by the way, is doing voiceover. It for does an sound... animated thing. Oh my right. god, heaven! It's almost as if we were being paid now. Right, for this. I, I, it would I know. be just like this. I'm very like I know about how where to put my mouth to the mic. I'm ready. <laughs> so when you got the job at the comedy club. What was the job there? Hostess. Hostess. Just seating people. Did you get that specifically thinking? Well, I thought it would be a fun job. getting into the comedy And I world? thought that I could write comedy Okay. for the comedians. I thought that would be a nice addition to my paycheck, getting a few dollars from these fellas. Had you been in a comedy club before? Just one time. Okay. And, uh, yeah, no, it was it was incredible because... I think everybody walks into a comedy club thinking, I mean, I wasn't an idiot. I knew how entertainment industry worked to some degree, but I was blown away that they, these guys could do the same act over and over again. <laughs> right. Like, cause the first time you watch it, it's, they're good. And you think, oh, they're just ad living right. that. Or, you know, I, I knew some of the jokes obviously had to be reused, but I was amazed by the amount of, memorization went into right. <laughs> a set. Even just that first weekend, yes. from a Thursday through a Sunday, seeing the same act six times. Yeah, you're like... You're going, oh. I, I know, the magic just gets peeled off so quickly. <laughs> like, Jesus. Even a throwaway line that you thought was a... It's not a throwaway line. Those were right, all Right, even though, like, at the end cue. of the shows, when they'd be like, first of all, I just want to thank everybody for this one of the best audiences we've had a week. You've been doing that every show! <laughs> Every show. How how many nights of hostessing before you had the impulse that you need to be up there? Oh, no, I never. I still don't have that impulse. <laughs> I have not yet acquired. Uh, no, I, I right away mm-hmm. was like, I can write this for these guys. I was really excited, I thought. Um, I was a little drunk, too. So I uh, – but I, I, I remember telling them that I was writing jokes for them and they were like really – you know, they wouldn't even read the jokes that I had written. I'd prepared, you know, I'd watched over some nights. And, right. Because um, you're the hostess. Because all I did was just stand there. I just stood there and I didn't have to do one I thing. I just had to stand there and watch comedy, which was great. And uh, and this was in Vancouver. This is in Vancouver, but it was a great comedy club mm-hmm. called The Punchline. And um, they brought in a lot of American acts. So I saw a lot of. And they, they, you know, some clubs do this, some clubs don't, but this club um, liked to grow its own comics. So it had a really great open mic night. Okay. And it would move you up as, you know. Um, so there was a lot, a lot of local comics working there. It was like a really cool comedy scene, you know. And uh, But they were like, you can't, nobody's going to buy your dumb jokes, you know. <laughs> it's like, you're so stupid. Because they were, you know, what are they making? They're making like, you know, they're probably making $10 a set. I don't know, remember what the comics got paid back then, but, hmm. you know, what do they make now? Nothing. $25 a set? Oh, you're talking about the MCs in the features. Yes. I mean, it's like. Yeah, they make the same amount that 
they were being paid 20 years right. ago. Right. I think like you got $100 for the weekend or something to middle, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But, um, but you know, we were young. We loved doing it. And then uh, so I eventually got up the courage to do it at the competing comedy club. Okay. Because I didn't want to get fired from where I worked. Now, did the competing comedy club knew that you worked? No. Or they didn't seem to. Okay. Nobody said anything. It's not brought up. And what was their open mic like? Their open mic was pretty good, too. Uh, it was uh, Yuck Yucks. It was a big club. It was more cavernous. It was much harder to do that club, you know, because it's like... How did they structure the open mic? Was it on a off night or... I think it was um, at the one club. It was every Tuesday or every second Tuesday. It seemed endless between open mics. And you had to call in. You had to be one of the first people to call in. Yes. And uh, then they would, you know, put you on. But sometimes I think that they would, if you had three, if you did three weeks in a row, they would just sort of like act like you weren't, you know. Some, I used to do stand up here and there in the late 90s. And it was amazing to me in Seattle, there was a great open mic scene, multiple clubs, multiple open mics. And then I moved to Arizona and the improv in Tempe had one open mic once a month. And it was on Sunday night, immediately after the headliner. Oh, my, wow. And you had to sh- call in or show up at the club at noon to sign up. Yeah. And, like, the first ten people got it. And there was no, like, you, you just call. But they I put you on we, we after, could... the headli- after the show was I know, over. Like, they said, they've just seen okay, this amazing You've seen show. an amazing, you've seen John Panette. You've it's seen been professional great. now. If you want to stick around, <laughs> we're going to bring up some right. people you've never heard of before. <laughs> I know. It's like, uh, but it was like, I remember there being like quite a few people coming to the shows and it's pretty fun. It was like a fun scene. Did you fit into the scene once you were performing or um, was there still kind of a dichotomy between um, the hostess at the punchline and um, an open micer at Yuck Yucks? And- well, I see, I knew so many of those guys and stuff before I started doing it. Like they right. knew, like those guys so were it- actually trying to get me to do it a lot okay. before I started to do it. So, um, and there was really no other women. There were some women on some open mic nights, but there was no, um, there was, there was nobody that was, uh, that I felt like was really like, this is a career, mm-hmm. you know, I want to work hard at it. Like, I mean, I, I, when I moved to Toronto, I met other women like that, but not so much in Vancouver when I started. Oh, th- there was women that were ahead of me that mm-hmm. were great. And, right. You do and talk a bit in the book about, you know, trying to make female friends. And do you feel yeah. like uh, I get the sense, you know, in New York and L.A. and other s- comedy scenes that there's a lot more uh, camaraderie and friendships with among, the, among the women? Among in the women. I... I you know, I think it's... I don't know um, if it's a social media thing that the internet brings you together. Or... Um, I think there's enough of us now that we can openly dislike each other <laughs> occasionally. Uh, no, I... Um, <laughs> Without I, feeling like you're <laughs> bringing the gender down? Yes. I think one of the reasons it's hard uh, and it's different now is that when I was... I would go on the road mm-hmm. and it would just be me. You know, there was rarely, I, I never hung up. There was never any other women around, you know, it was just occasionally there was like another girl, but you never really got to know her because they wouldn't put two girls on the same show. Right. And, uh, sometimes on open mics, they'd be, you know, two girls on the show. But the thing is, is that 
you know, in open mic days, you're really competitive, uh, more so than when you get even into like being a middle or being a headliner because you're trying to cut through all this. There's a lot of other people around trying yeah. to get what you want. So it wasn't like about hating other women or anything. It's just that you were kind of competing with everyone on a pretty big level. So then um, when I moved to Toronto, but I had friends outside of comedy and Lynn Shawcroft has been my friend. Yeah, I was going to ask about Lynn. How did years. you and Lynn become Well, she was friends. working at... Uh, the punchline as a waitress. Okay. And so I knew her, but I really didn't start hanging out with her until, um, I started doing stand up, and then, uh, I don't know. She just, she's one of the funniest people on the whole planet. She's just a genius. She really is. Um, so yeah. Well, and then we moved to Toronto together and then she moved to New York a little bit when I was there. And then when I was in LA, she moved to LA, you know, but you moved to New York before she did. Yeah. How did you pick New York? Um, well, I wanted to do um, Caroline's Comedy Hour, which I'd seen on television. And so I called Caroline's in mm -hmm. New York and got through to the booker and asked him if I could be on the show. And he let me he let me do stand-up over the phone for him and said yes. So you, <laughs> so you skipped right over just getting booked on any show at Caroline's and went straight yes. for getting booked on the television <laughs> yes. show for Caroline's. Yes. What, yes. year, what year was this? Okay, so, mm, I don't know, mid-90s. Okay. I'm not 100% sure. Like, 94, 95, 96, maybe So, Caroline's might not have had a website. No, there was no websites and right. stuff like that. No, that wasn't yeah. happening. It was, we're talking mid-90s, yeah. Yeah, no, it was like a long-distance charge. I had to decide if it was worth the long-distance charge. You called charge. from Vancouver. No, I was in Toronto. Oh, you are in Toronto, okay. Yeah. So I'd so already won this contest time? in Canada, what which the... didn't get me any friends. What was that contest? Right after I started doing stand-up, I entered a contest, and it was uh, Canada's Search or, or Search for Canada's Funniest New Comic or something like oh, okay. that. And I won that. And um, uh, there was a lot of backlash for winning that. Also, I think I might have been a little bit of an asshole <laughs> after I won it. Because I was like, good. Now what? Like, let's get this thing rolling. Right. Um, cause it was really, you know, I was ambitious in the beginning. I was very, uh, so you did have a little bit of heat, even if it was just Canadian heat. Yes. And you had a credit that you could, I was in, a, I was in, a, I was in a magazine Lewis or something, Miranda or which who, is, whoever yeah, you I think I might've told him that. I don't know. I don't remember. So it's not just, I was always slightly embarrassed about that credit cause it seemed so like, Funniest new comic from Zimbabwe. Right. <laughs> but it's a, okay. I mean, everybody in show business is looking for a hook. I know, but so I don't know. One. I mean, I wasn't you really. did have that. So I did have that, and I did have a manager who had written me a letter because he'd seen some, I guess it was something for the Montreal Comedy Festival one year. They'd put my picture in just as a, people to watch in Canada because I right, won that you contest. Won the, right. And so he'd written me a letter like to manage me, and I didn't I didn't know what a manager was. I had no idea. Somebody explained it to me, and I still didn't know what it was. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I know what it is now. Um, but uh, when I called Caroline's, they asked me, who's your manager? And I said that guy's name. Okay. And then I had to call the guy and be like, hey, I said you were my manager. And he goes, because I am. <laughs> he was, like, completely on board with it. And how long did that So we, he was last? my manager for quite a while. I actually really liked him. He He, he really is, like... A uh, very decent, good human being, but um, I was just uh, 
I didn't know what was going on. I was really overwhelming when I look back on it. And I thought I sort of acted like I knew it was happening, but I didn't really, I don't think. Like, cause I, is I that moved... chutzpah or what is that? What is, what is <laughs> it's fueling ignorance. that? I mean, I moved to New York and, uh, then I lived in Toronto for a little bit, but then mm-hmm. New York is, I remember my manager was like, do you know how to use a subway? And I was like, really? <laughs> okay. We have a subway in Toronto. I think I know how to use a subway. I was like, really like eye rolly, like, what are you? <laughs> What do you think? We're just walking around mm-hmm. with, you know, snowshoes on. And then I went down to the subway and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I can't do it. So well, that was all- like, that's my whole life is being like, oh, my. Yes, well, New York in the 90s, I can do it. Well, well, New York in the 90s is also a little bit more of the New York that I, people. And I lived in Harlem, too. Okay. Where? People would find out where I lived and they'd be like, <gasps> right before <laughs> gentrification hit Harlem. Yes. And I'd see their faces and I'd be like, why? What? Right. They'd be like, nice knowing you. Did you have, still have to have day jobs? I did not have any day jobs uh, after a certain point. I think after Vancouver, after I won the contest, mm-hmm. no more day jobs. Did the contest give you cash or just cachet? I think it gave go. me a little bit of cash. I don't remember how much, but I did get a TV, a huge TV, and I had to give it to my friend because my apartment was not, could not, could not house that TV. <laughs> and uh, she acted like, oh, she, it was such a pain in the ass for <laughs> right. her to take that huge TV. When nobody would, <laughs> don't give starving artists huge TVs as gifts. Um, it's <laughs> just it's so dumb. At least not in the nineties. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, um, I don't know. I just would move. I would just leave all my stuff. I would just be like, you know, call friends. If you mm. want anything, go in and get it. And then the, the landlords would have to deal with it, I guess, or whatever. Mm. You know, you just left. You didn't have right. things like that. So, and you also write, I guess you write about a hidden trick. About just finding a boyfriend who has a place. Oh, yes. <laughs> so. That helps. <laughs> That's why, like, well, when you see homeless women, aren't you like, what do you <laughs> go to the guy you know? That's feminism, right? That's, that's <laughs> taking survival. Ad- taking advantage of a man. That's true. Yes. <laughs> isn't, like isn't that what you're, feminism you're, is? You're leveraging the power. I think that's actually the definition of feminism. Um, I also love that you talk about your Montreal New Faces experience. Oh, yeah. Because that's a time, because you did that, what, in the late 90s? But that was like the time um, yeah. that I always hear about. I didn't start going to Montreal until about a decade ago. Yeah. And they'd and, always and, be like... They were always talking about, you should have been here 10 years earlier. Oh, That's my what God. they were just handing out yes. deals and... <laughs> Right. Well, I got a deal there, $185,000 development deal. But when people talked about the people that got deals that year, I wasn't mentioned. It was like I was way below <laughs> what people were getting. That's how crazy, That's how crazy the deals were, yeah. that yours was not the, I, you Not even enough to mention. Right. Uh, they were like, because David Tell got a deal that year, I think, and maybe Greg Giraldo did. And it was like, these guys got these massive deals. And I'd be like, well, I got a deal. Yeah, but yours right. was like little. But you did you did manage to turn, if not that deal, that experience into something. Like I forget that you had TV credits before Last Comic. Yeah, I mean it's weird that and Last Comic was ten years ago, right? So people are always still using Last Comic as a credit. You're like, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> but also, it's like a weird thing to use as a credit because everyone has that credit. 
Well, now that it's been... It's been on for 10 years. I don't know how many. It's like 11 And also anyone, anyone who made the semifinals uses it because they were on camera. Right, right. So it doesn't matter. I mean, I was in top 10, but, you know. Yeah. And nobody remembers me from the show. Like, Rich, everyone remembers from the show. Right. He's a guy that if you see him once on TV, people remember who he is. Well, he also manufactured a, a bromance storyline. Right. With Dave Mordaunt. Right. On that. Right, that's true. Um, they did well. Had you met Rich before that? No, I met him while he was on that show. Okay. And then we pretended we met <laughs> <laughs> on my season. But he's the one who convinced me to go on the show. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not that kind of comic. You know, mm-hmm. I was really more of a writer at that time. I was writing a lot in Los Angeles and, um, I would do stand up on the weekends and stuff, but I never, you know, I did, I rarely did more than a 15 minute set, you know? And, uh, so I did TV and I did these little sets and stuff, but I never went on the road. I never headlined. I never even middled really. Well, the first time I saw you live was as part of a last comic package tour. Oh. Where you and a few other people from the oh, show were, oh, okay. were all performing. Yeah, maybe. I only did a couple of those. I was not asked to do anything after Last Comic Standing. Like, there was, everyone was going out on tour, and I was like, well, hey, what about me? And then Rich was like, hey, you can come with me. And I was like, all right. <laughs> I was like a homeless comedian. I had to find my boyfriend. Is that what won you over with him? No, I really liked Rich when I first met him. I mean, I like people that are... He, I mean, he's a person that can't help but be himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I was like, I like that about people. Hmm. <laughs> Honesty. He's or or a lack of. Uh, he's never not rich. Transparent. You know what I like, mean? Yeah, it's you like, know what you're getting. He would come in here and he would just be rich, full force. Yeah. You'd never be like, what's wrong? What's if he wasn't being rich, you'd be worried. You'd be really worried. <laughs> Like, why aren't you insulting? Are you dying? (laughs) (laughs) And the book came about because of Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain, another no bullshit guy. Yeah. He's always Anthony Bourdain. Exactly. And that was a roast you were writing for him. Were you there? No, I wanted to go. I I wrote about it as if I were there. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> the comics comic is everywhere and nowhere. Com- I could have done a little inside scoop for you. I don't know how I got that roast. Caroline's called me. I think they were having trouble getting women, to be honest. Uh, Anthony, I think, had nixed a couple of the w- women that they'd... Hmm. I know one of the people, but I don't want to say right. it. But, um, had you done a lot of roast, either writing for or performing roasts? Um, well, I mean, just sort of, uh, like not for Comedy Central or anything, but I'd done a lot of roasts, just, you know, when the comedy club sometimes will have a roast mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, um, I'm good at writing those jokes. So I, j- and it was all these, you know, chefs and stuff. I don't know. The, the, the jokes for the, the show were sort of easy to write and, uh, um, I worked hard on it and, uh, then, um, did you know that you had made a lasting impact well what a couple of things happened so he liked me on that roast i was really mean to everyone but i was also mean to him and uh i was worried after that i would had maybe been too mean Mm -hmm. to people but um he was very nice and then his agent came up to me and said i really we need to talk but it became 
kind of crazy up there at the dais, and I left. And uh, um, my friends and I. So it was immediate that his agent contacted. Yes, like that. And then so my friend, so my friend Mandy Stabmiller, Mm -hmm. who is like, you know. A social media genius. Right, I think she might have been working for the Post still at the time. Was she? I don't remember. And um, so she said to me, "You have to like contact his agent." Mm-hmm. And because uh, I guess he'd gone on the Today Show too, or the or one of those morning shows, and said I was the funniest, and they played a clip of me. On oh wow! It. So she called me. They had a clip. They had they taped it. I didn't know, and. Uh, so they said, um, so she said, you have to get in touch with the agent. Mm-hmm. To, and I go, I don't know the agent's name or anything. She said, Google Anthony Bourdain's agent, you know, and write her an email. Mm-hmm. So I did. I found her and I wrote her an email and I just said, hey, you know, you want to go for lunch or whatever? And she was like, and I said, if this isn't Anthony Bourdain's agent, um, you're still really good on Google. Cause she was there very, she's very accomplished. <laughs> she just got Lena Dunham, like a $4 million book deal or something. So she was like, yeah. She goes, can we go out for lunch on Wednesday? And can Anthony come? And I was like, yeah, I guess. So <laughs> we went out for lunch and they asked me if I wanted to write a book. And then I said, okay. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I know. It's pretty <laughs> cool. I mean, that's like sort of the way my life is. Like, it's like so. I have no idea where things are going to come from. Uh, that's good. I'll just call. I'll just call a comedy club. Get on the TV <laughs> show. <laughs> I'm going to call this an tomorrow. Hey guys, can I audition? What has been the the best kind of lasting advice you've received over the years? I don't. Uh, hmm. Whether it's from Anthony or Rich or. Well, Rich has Anybody? given me a lot of <laughs> advice. Uh, but what, never the, stops. What's the What's the advice that keeps you going? You know, the the truth is, is that I look at these comics that I think are so great, and I really do want to be as good as them. I I I've care so much less about fame and money. Uh, I like I did the weekend at the Stress Factory, and I forgot to get paid. Like, I just, it's not, I don't know. I'm just like, can I get this fucking joke to work? <laughs> no, That's like what all my thing is. So um, I just, I want to be, and then when I, I know you have to go. Note I, to Vinny, please yes. pay please Bonnie pay for her gig at the Stress Factory. <laughs> um, so I wanted to, uh, I went to the, the comedy store uh, last week, mm-hmm. and it was, Mark Barron was on, and then um, Chris Rock did. A, oh, he was pre- he was prepping his Oscars. Prepping monologue. for the Oscars, and then Louis C.K. came on and did an hour, and I was just like, oh, my God. Like, they're all so good. They're so different. Mm-hmm. They're so good. And I just, I don't, it's, it, stand-up is so hard. People that were like, you know, I made a movie that was really hard. Writing the book was really hard. But yeah. stand-up is definitely the hardest. But but you're, you're still so accomplished at all three of those things. I mean, I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really killing it. <laughs> Uh, you are so so on the flip side if if a um if a naive young performer comes up to you or calls you up on the phone out of the blue and just asks you for advice what's the first thing you tell them um how'd you get my number yeah (laughs) stop calling me um (laughs) no you know i i do think this is true is that it's a competitive business so if you're not willing to be competitive mm-hmm. about it then get out you're not gonna you know p- people who just sit at the bar and wait 
for this shit to happen to them. Like I've seen really talented people that don't, I'm not saying you have to push and be like obnoxious about it, but you do have to like think you're good enough to get on, to be one of the people that is on the stage. Right. And then, then, then you're halfway there, <laughs> I guess. Well, Bonnie, I'm glad that you keep getting up on stage because it's oh, always a delight to see you. Thank you. What a nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being here, for writing the book and making the movie Women Aren't Funny. And, oh, thank you for having me. And for me. babysitting Rich. Yes. Uh, keeping him out of everyone else's hair. I know my job. <laughs> and you do it well. Oh, thank you. Thanks. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.